everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well Actually, the Athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. This is your host, Fernanda Prates, and this week I am joined by Dan Stupp, co-founder and former editor-in-chief of MMA Junkie and current managing editor at The Athletic MMA, also known as My Boss. <laughs> Yes, after interviewing some of the most intimidatingly talented people in MMA, I have decided to graduate and interview the person who is directly responsible for my schedule, my stories, and basically my job. So, yeah, why the fuck would I take such a risk, you ask? Well, you know me, I'm a daredevil. I laugh in the face of danger. Just last Saturday, I ate cheese that had been expired for like two weeks while I binged on season four of Thoughts of Scrakes, so... Clearly, I live on the edge. But also, I'm doing this because Dan is awesome. And I get why you would think that I'm just saying this because he's my boss, but I do mean it, and hopefully you get to see it for yourselves today. If anything, being my boss makes me like 75% more inclined to hate you, as opposed to the 60% that regular people get. Uh, anyway, Dan and I worked together at MMA Junkie, and I got to learn so much from him about journalism and writing, which was cool and kind of useful and all, but most importantly, about high-quality audiovisual content such as BattleBots and 90 Day Fiancé. After leaving MMA Junkie, Dan eventually was in charge of assembling and leading the MMA team at The Athletic. And then, for reasons I still Still cannot quite explain, but hey, I am not complaining. He brought me on board. I get a lot of questions on Twitter about Q-Somber Music, the media, and somber music, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if I had to signal that. I think you would have understood it either way. But yeah, I often get questions about either just the nature of the job or how to break into the market or much harder questions about how to deal with sensitive and difficult topics or how to stay ethical and critical in a fast-paced media environment that often cherishes speed over quality. I don't always know how to answer those questions, but I think that they make for incredibly important conversations. And I think that Dan is a uniquely qualified person to have them with. So I'm excited about this one. Hopefully, I will not embarrass myself too much in front of my boss. <laughs> If I do, though, I will have a link to my resume up by the end of the week. Please just disregard the part in which I say I can do spreadsheets because that is a lie. And also, I will not confirm nor deny that Oprah did not, in fact, define me as a generational talent with the luscious, most mesmerizingly beautiful set of hair in MMA media. Just please don't tell that to Dan. I'm pretty sure he was iffy on me and it was the hair thing that really sold it. First off, I would like to thank my guest for joining me today. I understand he's been a little under the weather and there may or may not have been a lot of phlegm involved. So thank you, Dan, and welcome to this mess of a podcast that you are partially responsible for. I am I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invite and it definitely wasn't something that I forced you to do, just so everyone knows. No, he never forced me to do it. He just strongly suggested. No, I'm just kidding. He just encouraged it, which is like, you know, you're an accomplice to the situation. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, so for those of you listening who don't follow uh, us on Twitter, first, consider fixing that horrible oversight. And second, I ask people to send us some questions. I don't think there will be enough time for us to answer all of them. So apologies in advance, but I will sort of like pepper them in throughout our conversation. But uh, first, I would actually, I know the story because um, 
Dan has told me, but uh, maybe our listeners don't know it, and maybe I forgot most of it because I have bad memory. But Dan, uh, could you just please start off by telling us the story of how you co-founded MMA Junkie? Yeah, I was uh, working for the Cincinnati Reds at the time, a, a major league baseball team, and I had gone to journalism school and, and had been writing forever. Um, you know, as I got through college, I thought maybe I wanted to work for a, a professional sports team and, and kind of get on the PR communication side of things. I think after a few years, I realized I actually like kind of pure journalism a, a lot more. Uh, so I was looking for an opportunity, just something to kind of do in my spare time when I wasn't at the ballpark and I wasn't working the uh, baseball games. And it was uh, about 2005, 2006. Um, I really started getting into MMA. I really didn't know anybody who was into MMA. It was kind of a, a singular obsession, uh, yeah. something. So I was like, relatable, you know right? Exactly. <laughs> I think so many of us kind of came from that background where we were, and, and I think it's a big reason MMA was such an online sport. Was a, a lot of ways it was the only way fans could find each other. But uh, anyway, I was kind of looking to do something new. I, I realized there was probably a, an opportunity there. Uh, to build something, to build a business. Um, you know, I, I had the, the writing background, the editing background, and thankfully it just, you know, really was the, the right place at the right time with the, the right way to cover a sport. So uh, it, it worked out really well, and here I am 13 years later. Uh, so th- this that you mentioned, and I said relatable, uh, my story with MMA is kind of like similar. Um, like you said, I think a lot of us went through similar experiences on that sense, but it was kind of like, it was just weird and out of the blue <laughs> how I started really getting into MMA. Um, what was it though that, you know, from baseball, which is so entirely different and I'm not even going to pretend that I understand baseball because I do not. It just, it's just very weird and alien to me, but in terms of MMA, what, what sort of like drew you to it? I think it was that it was the complete opposite of baseball. Like I I grew up playing baseball. I love baseball. I still love baseball, but it is the type of thing that you put on in the background and, you know, get your work done or, you know, have to make a drive or do the lawn. Um, MMA, it was edge of your seat. Uh, Every second felt like it meant something. And obviously this was before we had, you know, a half hour TV breaks before fights and stuff, but it just felt like the entire time that I tuned in for an MMA event or a fight, it was, it it felt like almost every minute mattered. And I I think just kind of that role, that, that excitement and that, uh, you know, yeah, anything can happen in baseball, but not really, but in MMA, just, I mean, from a sporting standpoint, just about anything can happen. And I think just, you know, the the two baseball and MMA just really balance each other out. And, and even now, you know, if I'm talking about watching sports, obviously uh, watching MMA or, or college basketball, another thing I really love that's high paced is just so different from watching, you know, baseball and golf and the other things I care about. Yeah. I can totally see what you're saying because baseball and golf both bore me to tears. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just three hours at the very least for a game. I do not understand that. So yes, it does. I can absolutely understand what you're says saying. The, but... <laughs> says the woman who watches seven hour MMA events every weekend. Oh, but it's like different <laughs> fights. But you are absolutely right. right. Yeah, it's, like I said, it's weird. I cannot even explain it. But when you started Junkie, though, like, 
it obviously became huge. Now, uh, neither of us are there anymore, but it, it is one of the biggest MMA websites out there. Did you expect it to grow as much as it did? I mean, I figured for me, like, really, something that was really successful was maybe I could make a few extra bucks a month and, and you know, kind of fill up some time outside of work. Or I, I just, you know, I, I had expectations. I, like, it was a good opportunity. Like the sport was really starting to take off. There were hardly, there really weren't that many people covering it like in a serious manner. So I figured if nothing else, it, you know, it filled the kind of the, the journalism, the writing bug kind of doing my own thing. Um, but no, I, I never expected it one to get as big as it did and two to get as big as quickly as it did. Um, and really it, it was just, you know, that wasn't so much me or the website as it was just the sport taking off and the UFC really starting its kind of world domination. So again, right place, right time. But uh, I, I really never expected it to get as, I, I didn't expect MMA junkie to get as big as it did. And I didn't expect the sport to get as big as it did. And at first it was just you and John, right? It, it was actually just me and, and two guys from uh, a guy from Cincinnati and a guy from Kansas city who I had met through uh, poker. We were all poker players. Um, they kind of helped me get it off the ground. Uh, Eric Foster did uh, uh, tech stuff and, and our website, uh, business operations, and then a guy named Tom Cummins uh, helped with advertising and SEO and marketing and things like that. So, uh, I mean, really, initially, probably for about the first year, it was a writing team of one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't have any days off, tried to cover every event. Thankfully, there were only 14 event, UFC events back there instead of True. nearly 50, you know. Uh, but then John Morgan was kind of our first part-time employee. He quickly Got became full-time. And then, you know, we really started kind of building the staff. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely scary. And I, I really didn't expect it, you know, to get to the point where I'd be hiring employees and, and, you know, talking about selling the company to a major media uh, company like USA Today. So I, I don't know. I, I think I expected it to maybe do well and, and maybe get mm -hmm. an audience, but just not as big as it did. What was the first event that you actually covered live? Uh, it was UFC uh, 68 when the UFC made its debut in Ohio, which is where I was living at the time. Uh, it was back in uh, 2007, and then that was the fight where Randy Couture came out of one of his many retirements to fight Tim Sylvia uh, and win the heavyweight championship. Uh, there was a, a lot of, you know, Rich Franklin was on that card, a guy who I got to know pretty well. Matt Hughes was mm -hmm. on that card. Uh, Matt Hamill, another local guy in Ohio. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that, that was my first MMA event covering. That was my first MMA event in person, period. And I think just kind of seeing that live and experiencing it, I, I realized there was something really special there. So Dan Henderson was already like retiring and then retiring back then. Yeah, I mean, even back then he was an old guy. So <laughs> Yeah, true. Uh, and you did write uh, for our listeners a great story on Rich Franklin that is up on The Athletic because you don't don't get to write all that, uh, that many stories uh, anymore. Now you're mostly editing, but uh, that's an amazing piece if you guys want to check it out. Um, but okay, so that's what got you into MMA, but I think we're both, um, 
critical people and we both had our moments in which we were like what are we doing with our lives when it comes to MMA right so uh and I get that a lot a lot of people ask me like what what has kept you in it though and it's weird because uh you know I haven't been doing this for as long as you have but it's been pretty much a decade and I think that for me it's very much the stories right like they it just seems like you never run out of them these are very interesting people who have very interesting backgrounds and very interesting reasons for doing what it is that they do. But uh, I wanted to ask you that question. Like, what do you think that has kept you in the sport for this long? Yeah, I mean, I, to be completely honest, if I were just an MMA fan, I would probably be gone or I would have to take, you know, a hiatus from time to time. <laughs> I think like Randy just, Couture. Right. <laughs> like, I retire mean, exactly. and not retire. I, I would be coming in and out of retirement. <laughs> I would be a typical UFC fighter who, you know, I say I retire or I'm leaving, you know, the sport as a fan and no one believes me. But I, you, you just need to decompress sometimes because the sport mm. can be really heavy. But honestly, that's the reason that I love covering the sport, being a, an editor, a journalist, a writer. Um, you know, when I worked in baseball, it was very cookie cutter, like, uh, this time of day, you talk to the players. Uh, this player doesn't talk to media. This player will talk to media if you set it something up ahead of time. Uh, these are the topics you can discuss. And I mean, it was a pain in the ass. And that was even when I was working for the team. You would think if and you know if they were going to be nice yeah. to anybody <laughs> and, and helpful, and, and it <laughs> was definitely not like that. And then just seeing how easy it is to get in touch with fighters. I mean, mm -hmm. how easy it is to approach them, how eager they are to do media. But then, like you said, I mean, on top of it, there's a million storylines a day. Um, it is never a problem of having... Sorry, my dog. Is that Dakota? Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Dakota. I miss you too. Going back to the question, I mean, a big part of it was just that it was fun to cover a sport kind of as unruly and, and wild as MMA. We ne had no shortage uh, of topics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've told people one of the, the worst parts of covering baseball, especially the Cincinnati Reds when I worked there, uh, mm -hmm. seven years, seven losing seasons. Uh, the baseball season, for people who don't know, goes from like the end of March until October. And there's nothing worse than then having a game every day, working that game, and it's May or June and you already know you stand no chance of getting to the playoffs and mm -hmm. you're already that your season's over and you still have 120 games to go. Like it's just demoralizing. No one wants to write about it. Nobody wants to watch it. Uh, but yeah. with MMA every weekend now, you know, there's something new to something new and shiny to grab our attention, which I love. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. I agree with you. And that is something that, um, I mean, I talked about stories, but that also has a lot to do with why I love it. Because I started I started sort of with MMA when I started doing sports, but I did soccer too. And that was it was the same thing. Like you you didn't really have that much access to the players. Everything was just very controlled. So I just think that it's an entirely different type of content that you can get uh, with MMA. But so you you kinda like saw the whole thing, the whole development of this entity the mma media <laughs> and um i joke about this a lot because uh mma media cue somber music has been uh, sort of um 
criticized a lot. And I do think that's fair because I think that as media, we have to be scrutinized. We have to be criticized um, because obviously media plays a huge role. We have a huge responsibility. So I do think that it's fair that people are paying attention and, and sort of like holding us accountable. But I also feel kind of at the same time that um, there's some scapegoating going on there. And I think that's a trend with media everywhere, not just MMA media, but um, just sort of like, I think we feel, I get, I feel like we get a little villainized sometimes and um, I don't mean to, but I get a little bit defensive because I am MMA media, you are MMA media, we know MMA media and we're all people who just kind of like, I feel like we're all, most of us are people with good intentions who are just trying our best to, you know, get paid and, and put out good content at the end of the, the day. So um, my question for you is like, how do you feel about that? Like, do you feel like there is maybe some unfair criticism in terms of just the MMA media entity? Like, how do you, how do you see all that? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we, we know that the, you know, quote unquote MMA media all gets grouped together and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think maybe it, it used to annoy me, especially when we've, you know, at MMA Junkie and now at The Athletic, we, we try to do things the right way. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's so many factors that kind of go into it that, that, you know, maybe people just so easily overlook. I mean, for one, like MMA popped up and became a thing uh, just as media itself was changing. You know, the introduction mm-hmm. of, of bloggers and just uh, media companies looking to scale down and, and hire cheap labor. You, yeah. you you know, you hire cheap labor and, and that means you're getting inexperienced or uh, just not quality. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. And it's not like you could lean upon guys who have been covering the sport for 20 or 30 years to, to show the way. Um, you know, there were some yeah. really good early, you know, reporters who, who kind of, you know, Josh Gross, who works with us. Uh, Kevin Ioli mm-hmm. came from the, the boxing world, um, I think, and, and helped. Uh, brought some kind of credibility to what we're doing. Um, but, and, and then on top of it, you know, it, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a, a tactful way to say this, but let's just say MMA has very spirited fans that maybe <laughs> others don't have sometimes. And, and I know we like to say um, it, it's kind of maybe a byproduct of, of the audience you're serving. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to put blame on, on some of the fans, but MMA is just such a, a weird fan base where it's like 20% people you wouldn't expect and 80% you, of people you would totally expect to be in the MMA. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can read into that what you want. Um, but, you know, it, it, I, I think, you know, a lot of the criticism is amplified, a lot of the missteps that maybe some media people uh, take – uh, that's amplified. But I think if you really look at the good rep- reporters, the good writers, uh, MMA stacks up with any other sport, especially younger sports that haven't been around that while. And I know, mm-hmm. know when we're within the MMA bubble, we like to talk about kind of what a weird sport it is, how some of the fans can be really bad, how some of the media can be really bad. But honestly, if you spend any time in, in some other sports, uh, European soccer, pro wrestling, um, any newer sport, even rugby and lacrosse that's starting to catch on, uh, you have new media, you have new fans, and, and a lot of the stuff, the criticism we see in MMA, you see in these sports. I, I think it's just kind of a byproduct of the new ma- nature of media and then also the fact that it's such a new thing and everybody's still trying to find their footing. 
Yeah. And I agree with you because that's that's a struggle that I uh, I constantly have. And I actually I think I probably asked all my uh, guests who were journalists here the same thing. Like uh, I asked myself, really, if this is an MMA problem, a media problem, a world problem. And I often have a really tough time um, answering that question. I so I that's why I have my guests answer them because I'm a coward. I just I'm terrible. I just put you on the spot. But this well, no, I, I think we we see it, too with the athletic i mean something as simple as a you know a paywall with a few bucks a month just kind of really weeds out a, a lot of the people you know i i don't want to kind of label people or, or throw everybody in the same bucket but mm-hmm. I, a, a better way of saying that is the type of people who would spend a few bucks mm-hmm. uh who understand the value of journalism like we're not giving you a tangible product something you can hold in your hand but the people who understand what they're getting for their few bucks, access to writers like you and and, and Chad and Sean and Ben and everybody, um, when, when you get those type of people, like your job becomes a lot more uh, satisfying because you, you get the kind of good feedback that is actually beneficial. Um, you, you weed out a lot of the the complaints where people call you biased or, or hypocritical mm-hmm. or you're being mean or digging up crap just because it's their favorite fighter where if it's someone they don't like they love when you write that kind of stuff so uh, i i think it's been nice for us to kind of you know when we worked for mma junkie uh we were a site for everybody so we had to kind of cater to everybody mm-hmm. so of course you're going to tick off a lot of people you know as you're trying to reach the masses and with the athletic, it's kind of nice. We really get a focus on kind of that twenty percent I was talking about. That you wouldn't necessarily think of them as MMA fans, but they appreciate kind of the beauty of it, the art of it, uh, some of the stuff that maybe other fans uh, who just like the kind of the pure violence of it don't really kind of understand. Um, this ties into a question from uh, that I got on Twitter that we both got on Twitter. Uh, this one's by John Joe Carter. He asked, since penning the original write-up to announce the Athletic MMA, do you feel like the original vision has been achieved? What are some of the high points and challenges you both have faced in bringing out this new product? Um, you're the guest, so you start. <laughs> this. <laughs> this is me being a coward again. Uh, yeah, but yeah no. go ahead. I, I, I think our original vision is, is we're, we're achieving it. I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I, I'm really proud of what we've done. If nothing else, uh, we've shown that there's a market for, for something like this. And, and that was a big question, Mark. But I think we've shown it. I think you know a, a lot of shows and a lot of websites have gone with a, a Patreon model, which has shown that you know Ben and Chad, they, they do an independent podcast and uh, they have quite a lot of paid um, you know supporters and, and shown uh, Jeremy Botter, Trent Rainsmith, uh, Ant Evans, you know have kind of gone the, the newsletter route. We actually wrote about that. Um, so I, I think we've shown that there's a market for it, that, that there are people who want kind of good coverage. They don't want like every, hey, any Conor McGregor tweet uh, or stuff like that, that there, there's a, a market for good quality journalism. And honestly, for a few years, I was really wondering, uh, is it even worth the effort to try to put out good journalism? Because it just didn't mm-hmm. seem like there was a market for it. So I, I think we're getting there. Uh, you know, as far as kind of the, 
the challenges of bringing this thing to life, you know, it's the same stuff we had before, you know, the travel budget, making sure staff members aren't stepping on each other's toes, um, you know, trying to give you guys autonomy to, to do your stories without me hand, you know, hounding you about them, but also making sure I'm giving you any guidance and, and oversight that you need. And, and that was one of our goals from the get go. So I, I think kind of to answer the question, I, I do feel like we're achieving the vision we had for what this site could be, um, you know, and, you know, the challenges aren't anything we haven't seen before. So I, I, we're getting there. I, I think, you know, it, it helps a lot when you hire the best of the best in our field, which is what we did when we hired all the writers. So um, you know, it's easy for me to say this is how it should be and, and we're doing a great job when I've got guys, you know, writers like you and, and the other, uh, the rest of the staff who, who make my job very, very easy. No. Uh, yeah, we have the best of the best and me. So, <laughs> okay. So, uh, as for me, like the high points, it's, um, I always say that it's one of those experiences that I often feel like it's just gonna end because it's just too good to be true and this is not just me like uh saying things just for the sake of saying them because that's not something i do it's just because uh it just it's a very refreshing experience that i never thought was possible to have professionally to just be like just to write things that i want to write about that's basically what uh what I get to do now. And I never thought that that was possible. Like nothing, there is never a time when uh, any of us, it's not just me, like are forced to write something because we have such a diverse group with diverse interests. I think that helps because we both have very different areas of expertise. So uh, we all claim different stories and we're all interested in writing different stories. But at the same time, I just feel like we have the time and the freedom uh, to just write what we want to write about. And that's amazing. But um, as for the challenges, that is also extremely challenging. There's a lot of pressure uh, that comes with that because, you know, there's no excuse. Like you're given time, you're given freedom. <laughs> so it has, to, there's no excuse for it to be good. Like you're not, for it to be bad. Like you're not being rushed. You're not being uh, forced to do things that you don't want to do. So it's kind of like, um, it just has to be good. And having things have to be good is very hard. I think maybe less for my coworkers who are not as neurotic as I am, but as a very uh, weird person, it is that is challenging for me. Um, and, you know, like sometimes we'll get the messages about complaining about the paywall. And I do understand. Um, it means that maybe our content is not being read by as many people as it was before. But, you know, I just, I have to go back to, we used to subscribe to newspapers and those same people who complain about the content being paywalled are the people who complain about clickbait. So it's kind of like, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is capitalism and I've been trying to, you know, be against capitalism, but pe people don't like that either. So it's kind of like, this is our system and the money has to come from somewhere. So. Sometimes I'm a little kind of like, man, stop complaining about paying for this content. But um, I do think that this is like some very small price to pay for good content. It's it's easy for me to say, but I subscribe to like a bunch of things. I subscribe to, for instance, the New York Times. And in Brazil, I subscribe to a, a few different papers. So it's kind of like I feel like it's worth paying those few bucks every month for content that is stuff that I actually care about. 
you know, so. And, and I think it's important to, to remember too, like, um, I, I know the paywall is, is tough. Um, you know, it's weird that we didn't think twice about it. Like you said, when subscribing to a newspaper or, you know, buying a magazine subscription that, you know, the, the journalism industry it was actually when I was in college, uh, you kind of start seeing that trend that people, um, that they would rather, uh, not like the newspapers decided, okay, we're not going to charge us for subscriptions. It's not working. We're going to try to find other ways to make money. And now I remember the point I was trying to make, which is even if you're not paying for a website, like if you don't have a subscription, you're, you're paying for it one way or another. And I know that's mm -hmm. a, a familiar talking point we, that we have, but you know, the, you know, at MMA junkie, we had the pop-ups. I mean, when we first, when USA Today first bought us, I mean, the old school uh, readers will remember the, the surveys you had to fill out, like just these random surveys, like which laundry detergent have you used? And then you had to check <laughs> before you could actually read the story. Uh, mm -hmm. The interstitials, um, you know, some, uh, you know, websites have to, you know, getting to these uh, kind of uh, creepy relationships with, you know, the, the brands that are advertising on their website or, or promotions or fighters or clothing companies or, or stuff like that. Like one way or another, you know, readers are, are, are paying, you know, whether they're giving up mm -hmm. part of their privacy or having to, to sit through these ads and, and things like that. And, you know, maybe it's just because I'm fortunate and I can afford to pay a few bucks a month. Like yeah. I, I, I'm the type, I will pay a few bucks to get rid of ads, you know, mm -hmm. like it, it's worth it to me. If I, especially if I know it's supporting, um, you know, a, a book or movie or film or, or something that a magazine or, or newsletter that I, I really appreciate, like I, as a journalist, as a, a content creator, I know what goes into creating that kind of stuff and it's not free. Yeah. So yeah, anyway. No, yeah, I, I totally, I'm there with you. And I understand that it's a bit of a privileged position, but, you know, I think that there's content for everyone. There's very good free content as well. Uh, MMA Junkie, still out there doing good content, MMA Fighting, and then there's us, and we provide a different type of thing. And if you feel like it's worth paying for it, then uh, we're glad. Uh, my next question, our next question, I keep saying mine. I'm sorry, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I do this podcast alone a lot. <laughs> So Jason Fillmore asks, this is very breezy and light. The topic is Conor McGregor. Um, he asked, I would like to hear more about how you both view the responsibility of covering something like the allegations against Conor McGregor. On the one hand, people who aren't aware should be made aware. On the other hand, there is no news to report or new takes to have. It's been covered. I've seen a lot of this needs to be brought up every time we talk about the cowboy fight online. And I'm curious, unless or until more comes out, he's officially charged or clear, etc. What is there to say? And is it y'all's responsibility to say something? That's a very, very good question by Jason. What do you what do you think, Dan? Yeah, I mean, this is a question we kind of had internally uh, within mm -hmm. our staff. And uh, actually, a really great column came out of it that uh, Chad wrote. Um, mm -hmm. If you go to the MMA page of The Athletic, I actually uh, stuck it in the, the spotlight section that's kind of midway down the page. So if you want to check out that question or that uh, feature, it's called How Will Sexual Assault Accusations Against Conor McGregor Be Addressed Before 246? Um, you know, Chad went and, and spoke to some journalism professionals, some professors, uh, some veterans kind of of the craft uh, to find out exactly, you know, how 
how we should handle this and, and what it comes down to. And I know if you're an MMA fan, and especially if you're a Conor McGregor fan, it probably feels like every time you hear about Conor McGregor, uh, you, there's a mention of these sexual assault allegations. Um, and, and, you know, it, it probably does feel like overkill to you. But there's also a lot of fans who maybe read one out of 10 things that you do. And this is the first they're hearing of it. I know as we get closer to uh, UFC 246 next week, uh, especially non-MMA people who are reading our MMA coverage on The Athletic, kind of your general sports fans, may have no clue about this. Um, you know, So it probably is worth mentioning in, in some pre-event coverage. Uh, but I think only to the extent that it, it affects the fight or that it affects uh, Connor's ability to even get to Vegas or to, to be free, you know, to, to travel. Um, you know, when something like that happens, um, you, you know, uh, you kind of have to acknowledge it. If you don't acknowledge it, you're not telling the whole story of this fight. Now, if you're doing a, a technical breakdown of the fight and who has the edge standing, who has the edge on the ground, you probably don't need to mention it there. Um, again, unless it's affecting his, his camp or it affected his ability to get training partners uh, into camp and stuff. Um, so, you know, again, if you're a Conor McGregor fan, it probably feels like overkill. The fact that we even mention the allegations probably feels like we're giving them credibility which, you know, as an editor, I'm obviously very careful that when we write stories that we make sure that they're allegations and, and that's all they are, that are investigations uh, into those allegations. And, and I think kind of another part of this and, and something that I keep coming back to is that because they can't report this stuff in Ireland because of the way, you know, the, the communication and media laws work there, I think it makes it even more important that we cover it, you know, especially because this is a, a U.S.-based fight promotion. It's a fight in the United States. Conor McGregor obviously became the celebrity he came in the United States. I, I think it, you know, makes it even more important that, that we cover this stuff the way it in the way it should be covered. And like, we shouldn't just, you know, throw out like, Hey, look at this latest Conor McGregor, uh, you know, allegation, but you know, something that that has legal re repercussions that could affect his ability to get to the fight that probably clearly affected his mind, at least a little bit as he was preparing for this fight. Like, unfortunately it, it is a part of the story and uh, you know, that that's the reason we mention it. But again, the, the simply, acknowledging the investigations isn't isn't a reporter isn't a media outlet giving them credibility is just you know again stating a fact yeah no i'm so you mentioned the chat column and i in my last episode which you we actually you have read that part because it was supposed to be my uh years in column but uh i praised it a lot because i think that what chad did was address something that had to be addressed in a very thoughtful way in the way that it had to be addressed so uh but I do understand that this is not something that can be done every time. That was one story. So you can't just, you know, include the whole background and a bunch of nuance every time you mention it. Um, I struggle myself with that sort of uh, responsibility, with that, like, how should we do this? Because I do feel like, 
yes, it needs to be mentioned every time, but I also feel like if we just keep throwing the information out there instead of um, doing the possible, the alleged victim's justice, and instead of doing every victim out there justice, you might just be playing against the cause because you're just getting people to eye roll and to feel like this is a witch hunt and to like sort of get defensive about the whole thing. So um, I often struggle with with how to touch on these subjects. Uh, I do feel like we, it needs to be mentioned and... I mean, if I were to pick an ideal scenario in the world, uh, I do what we did with the Chad story. But uh, when you're doing day-to-day MMA and you have to keep churning out these stories, um, I do think that it has to be mentioned um, and possibly hyperlinked to a bigger story. But um, I don't like how people are always saying like, People, this person is embroiled, embroiled in controversy or whatever. I feel like controversy is such a lazy word. Like, it's the laziest word in journalism because it's just like, it's such a cop. Right? You can just right. call whatever a controversy and not have to, to touch it. Uh, but to answer Jason, not Jason, this was not, yeah, that was Jason's question. Um, I do not actually have a good answer. That's why Dan is the editor and I'm the, <laughs> I'm the writer. Uh, but I do agree with him. I do think that it has to be talked about, even if for some people it's overkill. Um, but I do feel like sometimes we need to be more thoughtful in the way we address certain things, not just because of legal repercussions, um, but also because we want the subject to not lose its power. Um, moving on, I actually have, I'm just going to, I think two questions kind of like touch on the same thing. Um, Michael Fidel I always get it wrong. Um, what do you think could be done to change the general trend of avoiding particularly tough questions, taking promoters at their word without due diligence, and prioritizing access over reporting on less than savory dealings? You use a lot of long, complicated words, Michael. <laughs> or do you think the business model is too entrenched? And I think it ties into the question that Eduardo Irinio, who's a good friend of mine, asked, um, is MMA media more or less incestuous than other sports slash entertainment media. So um, I guess what we're trying to answer here is just kind of like about the general dynamics of MMA media. Uh, it ends up being very access-based. I don't think we can really run away from that too much. Uh, but we do have people doing very good journalism who are not given access to UFC events. So um, how do you feel about about the business model, Dan, do you think there's a way around it or is just like too big of a part of MMA? I, I think we're starting to show that there, there could be a business model for it. Obviously, um, what we do at The Athletic, <clears throat> we get credentialed. We've never gotten pushed back or threatened, uh, you know, to, to have our credentials uh, revoked because of something we've written. Um, you know, we've, we've, there have been plenty of opportunities for them to be unhappy with some of the stuff we've written. There's also been opportunities for them to be happy with stuff we've written. And, you know, I think that's what it comes down to. Like we, we don't, and, and again, it's a luxury we have. We don't have to care what people think about us, uh, yeah. other than that we're doing a fair job. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, I think my only job, uh, you know, kind of working with you guys is making sure that anything that goes on the website is fair. You know, were we fair as journalists? Were we fair just as MMA fans? Were we fair, you know, as someone who's just communicating basic information? 
Um, but I know it, it's different for the the sites who have to rely on being there. You know, when you're mm-hmm. uh, pumping out on-site fight week coverage. You know, we, we did that for years with MMA Chunky, and uh, if they put you know, pulled our credentials, that sucked. You know, my job was trying to make sure that that didn't influence how we did things. And I I think, you know, me personally, I I did a pretty good job of it. But there's, Mm -hmm. you know, when you work at a big media company, there are a lot of forces where, you know, kind of outside the control of the staff or the the editors, um, you know, it's a tough position to be in. Like, I don't, I, I'm I'm glad we are out of that position, but I think we've seen kind of with what, again, what Jeremy Botter is doing and Trent Rainsmith with their newsletters. You don't necessarily need access, but if you want to create the type of content that people want to see on a day to day basis, if you want to be covering the beat, mm-hmm. uh, you, you you do need that access. And unfortunately, with the way the UFC runs things, you you do kind of have to jump through some hoops. Um, I, I guess you know if you're a reporter, at the end of the day, you have to feel comfortable looking in the mirror and saying, you know, I, I, you know, I tried to be fair to the readers. I tried to be fair, you know, to my bosses. I tried to be fair, uh, to the promotion, to the fighters we're covering, but you know, that can be a tightrope walk sometime. And I guess, you know, just at the end of the day, you have to feel like you did what, I mean, you have to be able to sleep. You have to be able to live with yourself. And, uh, you know, I think that would hopefully keep some reporters from doing stuff that promoters and agents and fighters want them to do. Uh, but I think the good ones, we know that, you know, they're not going to be kind of pushed around like that. And, and those people hopefully, you know, can stick around. But, you know, we've seen some of them, guys like Josh Gross, um, you know, are, are still kind of on the outside. And, and thankfully, we have an opportunity for a guy like that who who still knows the sport, who knows the sports history, knows how to flush out a story. Uh, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, not everyone's going to be that fortunate to get a job like we have. Yeah, that's true. Well, the good thing is that I have a tough time living with myself regardless of <laughs> So I just, no, I'm just kidding. So yeah, you're absolutely right. But um, for me, like you said, I think it's a tightrope. I think there is a way to, I think, first of all, there's room for everything. There are people who do more adversarial reporting and who do more hard-hitting stories, and that's their beat. Uh, we have people who do that uh, very well, uh, Kareem Zidane, or I don't know, even uh, Morocco, Stephen Morocco, yeah. who we worked with at MMA Junkie and who's not at MMA Fighting. Like, he's a guy who um, has access and he's out there uh, being very ethical and producing amazing stories that won't necessarily please the powers that be. So uh, I'm not saying that it's always possible Um like you said, the way that MMA, that the UFC runs things, uh, a lot of the times it will cost you access like it has with, like you mentioned, Trent Rensmith. He has a, a great newsletter that you guys should check out, but he does talk about it there. So, But I do think that there's kind of like room for every type of content. There are different beats. And I do think that there's a way to be ethical in whatever you do. I particularly do not do... Um, hard-hitting pieces like it's just not my thing um not what i'm good at and not what i enjoy writing about uh but i do like to think that i've always kind of like been responsible in my reporting so i don't know if that answers anything but uh it is a tightrope and sometimes you're not able to walk it and that's not a detriment to you as a professional like sometimes just things uh don't work out that well uh but i do think that you know, there's a way to just be ethical and um, kind of walk it. Uh, 
And I think along those lines, I, I think maybe it was in the original question just about like, uh, and, and if not, it, it's worth addressing kind of when you ask someone like Dana White, who yeah, um, it, it's tough because one of the great things about MMA is, like I said, the access. And, and that's true even of Dana White in, in some ways. Uh, you know, you can ask a question and get an answer, but kind of then your role as journalists is vetting that answer. And I think we've gotten to the point where we know now that if uh, uh, if Dana says so-and-so is getting the next fight, it may be worth a story. It may be worth a tweet or, or you know, a, a, a note in a, a notebook type piece. But you've got to put it in the right context that, yeah. uh, you know, um, that's not to say you can't print what Dana says, mm-hmm. unless it's so outlandish that you know it's a lie. But you've always got to put it in the proper context. If Dana came out tomorrow and said, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, George Maswell at all is definitely next uh, for the next welterweight title shot. And it'll, yeah. it'll be at the end of 2020. Like, OK, you put that out there, but you need to explain, like, first of all, whenever he says so and so has the next fight. That, yeah. that is no guarantee. And now you're talking a year from now or, or 10 months from now. Like what the amount of stuff that can change in 10 months in a title picture, you know, uh, among fighters, like everything can change. So and, and I think that's where, you know, as you get more experience as a, a writer, as a reporter, you start to learn the nuances of the sport and then you're just yeah. a better reporter and you start to, you know, your, your spidey sense for when someone's just feeding you a load of bull uh, or when you <laughs> know you can't believe them. Like over 13, 14 years of doing this, there's just some stuff that people can say and you just immediately just roll your eyes and laugh and you know it's not true. And I think yeah. it's on you to get that, to convey that in your story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, so Michael's question says taking promoters at their word without due diligence. And that's something, like you said, we don't really have to do that anymore at the athletic because the way that we work is different. But even when we were doing day to day at MMA Junkie, like, uh, there was a way to report on whatever bullshit Dana White was saying and put it into contest. And that's something that you can do. Uh, it's harder because you're like churning out things quickly, but you can in one paragraph <laughs> kind of like contextualize it in a way that you're not just like, you're not saying this is true. You're saying this is what this relevant person said, but here are all, all these other things that the other person said. And I guess that's what I did when we were doing the day to day. And that allowed me to sort of live with myself, even when I was dealing with less than savory uh, subjects to put it in uh, Michael's words um on a bit of a lighter note uh as an editor this is something that i was gonna ask you regardless but we did um get a question from it from uh from uh, from twitter i get i get asked that which i find it's weird because it's kind of like people don't ask me serious things um just don't i'm underqualified (laughs) people ask me like for tips and advice on how to break into MMA and my main tip would be just don't (laughs) run from the hills this is a trap Uh, consider doing something else but uh, if you are very much dedicated to this as I was 10 years ago and nobody could talk me out of it um, yeah I would say like the standard advice that I give people is kind of like you know find your niche um, do something different, like try to explore something that other people aren't doing. Um, just things like that. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's the best advice I have to offer. Um, but I'm going to extend you the question. Callum Leslie asked, 
basically the same thing, but he has MMA journalism is very hard to break into with limited opportunities. As a veteran editor, how do you find and nurture talent? I mean, thankfully, <clears throat> I've gotten to the point just through Junkie and, and now through The Athletic where, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm fortunate that I kind of had the pick of the litter or that we can at least offer an attractive enough position that we kind of get the cream of the crop, which, again, very fortunate, very lucky. Uh, and MMA Junkie, you know, we did kind of try out some people or that's where they did the bulk of their uh, kind of learning the craft and stuff. Um, I, I think more than anything, like if I'm an editor, especially maybe a, kind of at a, a mid-sized site where you can catch on and, um, you know, get some experience, and kind of learn the ropes. I, I, the big thing, I, I think, is just, uh, well, I guess one, you need to have the drive. Like, you know, we had mm -hmm. a lot of people who wanted to write it for us, people who even did write for us for a time. And then after a month or two, it's like, oh, well, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not famous. This is actually work now and I don't enjoy it. And then you don't hear from them again. Um, I think as an editor, I just, I want to know that they're definitely into this type of work. And, and um, you know, on top of that, you do need a little talent. You know, when we hired um, uh, John Morgan the first time, he was doing uh, radio recaps. We were partners with Tag Radio, which became MMA Junkie Radio. Uh, they had all these great guests on the radio show and nothing, there was no uh, stories produced out of it. Like, you know, either you listened to the podcast or you didn't know what was going on. And I kind of saw, saw an opportunity there for just these little recaps of, you know, kind of highlights of the interview. Uh, John started writing those. I realized like, okay, this guy knows how to put sentences together. He knows what's important. He knows what, you know, is worth pulling out of that story. Uh, but then he, he was really good at, at listening to feedback and incorporating it. Like if I told him like, Hey, you know, this is a way to set up a quote or, or, uh, this, you know, we use the, these words instead of these words. Like the next time he wrote a story, I saw that. So I knew, you know, I was able to communicate with him. I knew he was listening. So I, I think, you know, as an editor, more than anything, you just want to see that eagerness that people are eager to learn that they, they're eager to incorporate your feedback. And, and then, you know, after that, it's having a little talent and the drive and, and communicating with your editors. So, um, you know, it, it's selfish, but at the end of the day, anyone that I want to hire or bring on as an intern or a freelancer, I, at the end of the day, I just, I, I need to know that you're going to make my life a little easier, you know, whether it's covering something we can't do in house, um, that, you know, it's going to be easy to edit your story a month from now because you're listening to the feedback and incorporating it. So uh, as an editor, those are the types of things that I'm looking for and probably that most editors are looking for. As talent who was both found and nourished, well, actually, John Morgan technically found me, but yeah. <laughs> you took a bat on me and nourished me. So uh, I will say that it works. Okay, everyone. Uh, uh, I, I think this other question also ties into that. Um, Juice Jackson, who hosts a great podcast himself, by the way, Fighting With Myself, he asked, how do you manage the want slash need to be different, um, both in your take on things and the topics you covered, with the pressure to, quote, quote unquote, stay relevant? Or perhaps you disagree with this notion entirely. Love to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I can start with that one just because I've thought about this. Um, I think, I don't know if I disagree with the notion entirely, but... 
I don't think about it as a want or need to be different. I think when you have a voice um, and a perspective that is your own, it is going to be different regardless. So when I personally am putting out my content and pitching things to Dan and just kind of like um, thinking of ideas, I'm not necessarily thinking about like, what can I do to be different? That ends up being kind of a consequence. Um, yeah. I've talked about this before in a different podcast because um, when I was brought on board The Athletic um, by Dan, uh, I saw this staff of incredible writers. And I, in my mind, was kind of like, what the fuck can I add to this <laughs> that these guys are doing? Like They were raised speaking and writing in English, so they're already one step ahead of me. And these are very accomplished and very talented writers whom I admire. I read all of their stories as a fan. Uh, but um, so in my mind, I was kind of like, what can I do that is different than what they're doing that will add to the team? And um, my answer just came very naturally when I started doing this podcast and when I just started writing the things that I wanted to write about it just it wasn't a thought of like oh my god I need to stand out like I need to have a take um it was just kind of like okay this is my experience this is my voice this is my perspective and it is going to be different because it's authentic and it's unique so simply because it's my own and it's not everybody else's so that's kind of like how I would go about the whole thing when I mean there have been people that I've wanted to hire or have hired where I knew I knew their stories, I knew their writing before I like I remembered their stories or, or I remember that more than I would remember their names sometimes just because it was oh that's the person who does really good uh, uh, coverage of the regulatory issues in the commission or that's someone mm-hmm. who's really good with uh, business and, and law or you know with you even before I knew your name it was like oh yeah she's she's the one based in Brazil uh, who's really funny and post Seinfeld Aww. clips like <laughs> uh, you know you kind of want to stand out and you can't stand out if you're writing what everybody else is writing like everybody can do a, a fight night recap everybody can give their take on a Conor McGregor tweet uh, mm-hmm. you know everybody can um you know, uh, break down the, the latest news and stuff. But, you know, when you can kind of either carve out a niche or, or show kind of what your specialty is, like a guy like Robert Sargent, who, uh, you know, was uh, or is an expert kind of a women, women's MMA. We brought him in to do a women's MMA report because in my mind, it was like, this is the guy who knows women, women's MMA. So be that guy or that woman who is known for something. But mm-hmm. I think kind of more than anything and, and, maybe I haven't stressed this enough is like before you think of becoming an MMA reporter, becoming an MMA columnist, like become a reporter, become a columnist. What if you can do it in MMA? Great. But you're never going to have an opportunity to be an MMA reporter at, you know, at least a a paid one or at one of the bigger sites or or something like that. You're never going to be an MMA reporter if you're not a reporter first. So uh, if you can get those skills while covering MMA, great. But if you have to do it in any other line of work, that's fine. Like, I'm going to take a chance on someone who's been covering sports for a long time, even if they don't know MMA real well, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who's been covering MMA for 10 years and has really like tried to get into the writing in the past six months. Like, I, I want a good journalist, a good reporter before I want, you know, someone who knows MMA. So for whatever it's worth, you know, whether it's going to college for a journalism degree or taking 
you know, smaller gigs covering music or, or festivals. Like, you know, there was a gap between when I left MMA Junkie and when I joined The Athletic when I was kind of trying to figure out what to do. I thought I was done with MMA. Uh, my wife and I bought a business here in Virginia. That's the reason we're here. I, I thought I was going to work on that full time. Um, then this job with The Athletic came along. But in between kind of while I was trying to figure out what to do, I took a job making like 12 bucks an hour writing for my hometown weekly newspaper in a town of 2,000 people. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, part of me was yeah. like, this is really embarrassing and, and I should feel bad for myself. And within a week, like I was having so much fun covering like high school soccer and and uh, middle school baseball and track and field. Like it was how I first got started. And honestly, like it really sharpened up a lot of my skills. And it was because I was focusing more on the writing and the reporting than the MMA, you know, or the sport itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, we need to wrap this up soon because we've been talking forever. Uh, And if it were up to me, we'd talk for like three hours. But (laughs) actually, I wanted to, you have helped me um, a lot with my writing uh, since I started MMA Junkie. I think uh, a lot, I bring this up every time, but uh, obviously this is not my native language. So even though I have been writing my entire life, there was a lot for me to learn. And I guess I'm just very generous and giving and I want to help other people benefit from your tips as well uh recently i actually had somebody reach out to me and ask me for feedback on one of their stories and i was kind of like okay very intimidated and i have i asked you to help me give advice (laughs) to them uh so i just wanted to to kind of ask from you like i think we have some basic things like less is more and those basic guidelines, but you know, what would you tell a person like a writer who is just starting out, who is writing for the internet? Um, you know, just in terms of not necessarily style, but just some basic tips and guidelines that they can follow, uh, in order to make them, you know, to become better writers. Yeah, I, I think we actually kind of talked and, and joked about this. And I, I think it hits home for a lot of writers where when you first start out, it's like you start writing like you're writing for, you know, 12 or 13 year olds or, or you know, a fifth yeah. grade reading level. Like <laughs> that's how everyone starts. And that's awesome because people, you know, can understand what you're writing. And then I think it's every writer's kind of uh, inclination or, or you get tempted to try to write very flowery like to 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 use all the words right like (laughs) you can't just use like a few words you want to use all of them (laughs) i was like what's a better way of saying he arrived at open workouts you know he gallivanted through the doors (laughs) and it's like no like you know you you start to realize like okay like you write simple then you write way too complicated then you go back to simple and you add in some of the tricks and and uh, some of the memorable little one-liners and things like that. But, you know, I think the key to that is, is reading good writers. And a guy like Ben Folks does it better than anybody where mm-hmm. you can read a story. And the reason he's effective is that he writes very clearly. Like when you get done reading a story, you know exactly what he meant, what he intended. Like there's no confusion. Like he didn't paint a picture that's confusing where you think you know what you meant. Like you understand his intent. And that sounds like a simple thing. But that's really hard sometimes to write a story and you know that just about everybody who reads it is going to know what you intended. Um, but it, it's totally fine to mix in a little humor or, uh, you know, to uh, try to lighten the mood of a very heavy story. But 
obviously you want to do it in the proper context. You shouldn't be cracking jokes and one-liners and a story, for example, about sexual assault allegations or uh, brain, you know, brain health and concussions and, and things like that. But I, I think the key is just reading a lot of really good writers to understand how they do it. And don't get over your, you know, don't get out over your skis, as they would say. Like, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with writing what seems like a, a simple, a simple style or a simple style or, or voice if people are understanding what you're trying to write. And then I, I think the final piece of that is you have to write something that's worth saying, that that people have a point, like leave make sure that when your writer or your reader is done reading that they've learned something there, that they've thought about something in a different way. If there's really no thesis to your story or there's no reason you wrote a story, then there's no reason to write it, you know? So again, don't overthink it. Keep it simple, read good writers and have a point for what you're doing. It really is as simple as that. I don't really, he's the editor, so I don't have much to add, but I do agree with, as somebody who struggled a lot with, who's a wordy person, I am a wordy person, um, I, I write long, um, I have all these tendencies and vices, um, and less is more is a tip that has really you, worked out for me. I, I think you think you're alone, but you also kind of have a lot of doubts or, or self-doubt along the way, and a, a big part of my job just as an editor, as you know, any editor is just kind of making, you know, helping you realize you're on the right track or that, you know, that you could do things a little better. And then, you know, especially with the athletic, because I have time to actually edit stories now instead of yeah. just, you know, uh, breezing through them over 10 minutes to, to get our story up this hour. Like the fact that I can spend a day with a story, a big part of that too, isn't just telling you what you guys did wrong, but telling you what you did right, pointing out stuff yeah. that, as a reader, I found super interesting so that you keep that stuff in mind the next time you write a story that, you know, I'm, I'm really good about, you know, paraphrasing when guys are, are trying to tell me something really emotional and the quote itself isn't doing it justice because, you yeah. know, they were they, they stopping and starting or, or lost their train mm -hmm. of thought. Um, but I think you're really good at getting the intended meaning of their quote and maybe paraphrasing instead of doing a big, long, direct quote. So, uh, again, you know, we were talking about a writer, but a big part of the editor job, too, is, you know, helping people fix what's wrong, but also telling them what they do right. Because mm -hmm. when you know what you do well, then you're more likely to do it and then your stories are going to be awesome. Yeah. Long story short, Dan is also a therapist. <laughs> Which is definitely part of the job. <laughs> definitely part of the job. Well, Chris, our producer, is also a therapist for me. So I have many therapists. It saves me a lot of money. So thank you. Uh, so just to wrap this up, I have one quick, uh, not really even a question. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you one mission. If okay. you could get rid of one word or one expression uh, in MMA, the entire MMA lexicon, it could be on Twitter, commentary, fighter interviews, whatever, which one would it be? I, when I first started covering MMA, one of the first guys to kind of reach out and help me like figure out how to start getting credentialed and stuff was Thomas Gerbasi, Gerbasi from the, the UFC. Yeah. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Gerbasi, I think. Is I think it's Gerbasi. Yeah, I think so. A longtime combat sports guy. His boxing writing is phenomenal. He does so much at the UFC. But we kind of joked around about how he was, I think he was, you know, I, I don't want to flatter myself, but I think he was telling me that it's nice 
to see kind of a, a guy with a journalism background covering MMA in a serious manner. And, and I can't remember if he said it or I said it, but we start joking about how every interview we came across started with, so how's training camp going? Like, <laughs> yeah. don't ask pointless questions. Like you got to ask some like softball questions to work your way into some tougher stuff, but avoid the cliche things. But beyond that, the one phrase that I would absolutely get rid of is going out on your sword. I, I think it's a I stupid it. philosophy. <laughs> I think that the mental picture it produces is just stupid. Like I, yeah. I, I hate the concept of it. I hate the, the words <laughs> themselves. I hate the mental picture it creates. Uh, so yeah, let's get rid of that. Yeah. I'm with you there. Um, <laughs> I hate tough as nails. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. I just hate it. It's just, it's lame. It's harmless, but I just hate it. <laughs> okay. So I think that, that does it for this week's uh, episode. Again, I really want to thank Dan for uh, being here and dealing with all his phlegm and mucus. <laughs> I'm going to let him uh, leave you to go back to your important editor things slash your bad reality television habits. And, <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me today. No, I, I appreciate it. And Dakota sends her apologies for barking. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So everyone, that is week, That is it for this week's episode. Uh, thanks to Dan again for his time and for giving me like jobs and stuff. After all, I have to provide for my family. And by family, I mean myself and my peanut butter habit. I also want to thank you all for sending questions and for listening. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. And if you don't, please, please consider getting better taste. I will meet... <laughs> those of you who don't suck next week so we can talk more MMA and other stuff. 